Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hi there, welcome back to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. This week, former Best Buy CEO and Harvard Business School senior lecturer, Uber Jolie. Uber's book, The Heart of Business, details his upbringing in France and a career that included several big turnaround jobs, the last of which at Best Buy became a textbook example of how to revive an ailing company. His approach blended compassion with a keen focus on what customers need, and he's now sharing that unique style of management with both executives and students at Harvard. Hubert spoke to my colleague Matthew Boyle, our senior management and workplace reporter. Here's their conversation. Hubert, uh, welcome to Out of Office. It's great to have you. Matt, I look forward to our conversation. Thank you for having me. So, when Hubert, when we last spoke at, at length, which was way back in 2018 when you came to Bloomberg's New York office, we focused, of course, a lot on Best Buy's revival, but we didn't get much of a chance to talk about your life before Best Buy. So, can we talk? Let's start at the beginning. Can we talk a bit about your upbringing in France? Where exactly did you grow up? And, you know, like, what did your parents do for a living? Yeah, Matt, so I grew up in France, in Lorraine, so close to the German border. My, uh, Three brothers, very happy family. I was um, driven to excel. So my mother always had, it's always about the mother, right? Had high expectations of me. I was, uh, you know, doing well academically and she had high expectations of me. So that led me to attend the the best uh, schools in France. I have a uh, master in business administration and public administration. Part of the disease I caught early was this drive for perfection, which I think exactly. is, uh, is very dangerous. I was confusing perfection and performance, and it took me a while to overcome that. Yeah. So you say that your mother was yeah pretty relentless in driving you to succeed, to be perfect, and, and it wasn't later. It wasn't until later in your life that you realized sort of how fruitless this approach was. But did it make for a stressful childhood? It was. It made for. I mean, I, I, I suffer from you know, a, a disease that many people suffer from, which is being an insecure overachiever. So I always worked hard and I enjoyed, I enjoy work. I, again, I was driven to uh, want to uh, attend the best schools. And then after school, you know, I joined McKinsey and Company, which is another yeah. place for insecure overachievers. <laughs> Certainly. And and so this, uh, this quest for perfection was part of, uh, and performance yeah. was part of my, uh, my journey, gotcha. a long, you know, a long time ago. Yeah. So before McKinsey, though, I was surprised to learn from your book that you actually got fired from your first job at, at a BMW dealership in, in France. And the next summer you worked what you called a pretty boring job at a supermarket slapping prices on canned food. I mean, what did those early experiences teach you about the, the nature of work, Hubert? Yeah, this this stuck with me and because at the time I committed to always remember these experiences. And that's the experience of most people, which is you know, uh, working in an environment where it's dull and you, you don't get a lot of uh, satisfaction and so there was no joy. I was working because I needed to buy a, a bicycle, you know, yeah. the experience of a lot of teenagers. But, I, you know, in that supermarket, I never saw any manager. There was no interest uh, 
you know, in, 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 in what I was doing. So when I was uh, hit by a forklift and I got two weeks off, you know, uh, to, to recover, I was in heaven because I, I got paid without having to, to work. And I think the question of what is work and why we work is such an essential question. I think it's the foundation yeah. for it's also the first chapter of your book, right? Yeah. And work yeah. is as a mixed reputation, right? Uh, uh, is, is work a curse, a punishment because some dudes sinned in paradise? Is that something we do because, so that we can do something else that's more fun, like uh, watching the, the Packers, you know, advance in the super, you know, towards the Super Bowl? The Packers, not not the Vikings. <laughs> You're not... You know, if I, if somebody from Minnesota, that's a mixed uh, feeling. Yeah, but, uh, watch out there. Uh, or is it something that's part of our fulfillment as human beings? And part of the challenges in the business life is that for most, I think it's, you know, Gallup has these surveys that shows that less than 20% of people are fully engaged. So it's such a waste. And so when I had these experience in, uh, experiences as a teenager, I committed to when I would become a leader, a manager, that I would thrive to create a better environment for, you know, whoever was going to be on my team. So talk to me a little bit about, yeah, um, your work there at, uh, at McKinsey. You said when you were at McKinsey, it was sort of the first time that you ever got any real feedback uh, in your job. And you were surprised, uh, a bit surprised to learn that, you know, you weren't uh, doing everything perfectly uh, correct. So tell me a little bit about that. It seems like you uh, didn't deal with it well at first, that this feedback. I think you said in the book, you actually just decided to, well, I'll, I'll, I'll ignore it. Um, but then, of course, you started working with an executive coach named Marshall Goldsmith, um, and he tuned you into kind of interpreting feedback as feed forward. What does that mean, and, and how has it made you a, a better leader? Yeah, so I was, uh, as to your point, I was struggling with feedback, and uh, I remember the first time I did a 360 after McKinsey when I was uh, the CEO of Carlson Companies before Best Buy, my reaction to the negative feedback was, who said that? What's wrong with them? <laughs> you know, yeah, how exactly. come they don't understand my genius? And Marshall was so helpful. Of course, Marshall Goldsmith is the father of all of the executive uh, coaches. And uh, when he did that 360, and then we continued with that process at Best Buy, he first shared with me the positive. And then as relates to the uh, other bucket, he said, you don't need to do anything with it, right? There's no law that says that you, but you get to decide as an individual what you'd like to get better at, which is a much, much more positive, you know, point of view on what to do and how to get better. And by the way, advice for everybody, if you have a, an employee or a coworker who cannot think of anything they'd like to get better at, suggest to them that maybe humidity could be one of the things they could work on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and then, so when I joined Best Buy, three months after I joined, I told my team, look, the, this turnaround is going to be hard. Let's agree with that. And the reason we know this, right, Matt, is everybody at the time in 2012 thought we were going to die. So that's how we know it's going to be hard. And so that implies that all of us on the team are going to need to be the, the best leader we can be. That includes me. I have this coach, Marshall, is going to come in and ask you for feedback. And then I shared, you know, with my team, these are the things I want, I'd like to get better at. And I'd like to follow up with each of you and get your advice on how I can get better at these things. And then in three or four months, I follow up one more time to see how I'm doing and see whether you have yeah. better advice. So it's a completely different mindset. And I've benefited... You know, I've had a coach continuously since 2009. And by the way, Matt, and I'll, I'll stop with this. I've checked 
exactly 100% of the top 100 tennis players in the world have a coach. And not just when they're struggling, it's all the time. And as leaders, I think it's so helpful to be able to benefit from a coaching relationship. And it's not just Marshall who's been your coach, though. You also relate a period, uh, relate in the book, a period of your life when you felt disillusioned and, and empty and you were looking for new direction. This is before you joined Best Buy. Uh, but instead of taking a traditional counseling approach, you ended up studying with the Jesuits uh, over two years, and it, it helped you rediscover what was really important. Can you share some of what you picked up from your, your mentor, whose name I think was Father Father Samuel, right? And, and and why was it important? Yeah, there was there was several things going on roughly at the same time. Um, and to quote uh, David Brooks, you know, it, it, 20 years ago, in many ways, I had reached the, fir- the top of my first mountain, right? I had been a partner at McKinsey and Company. I was on the executive team of Vivendi Universal. So quite successful in many ways. And yet I found that it, it was empty. There was no joy. There was no meaning. And so call this my midlife crisis, Matt, right? Yeah. And um, I decided that it was time to step back and try to figure out what was going to be important in my life. And uh, through a former client of mine at McKinsey, I got the opportunity to do the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola, of course, the founder of the, of the Jesuits. Normally, it's over a four-week period of time, but for us executives, they had structured it over a two-year period of time, like bit of a like a part-time MBA program. And this is and there's many ways to do this, but it led me to revisit my life, you know, the times in my life where I had joy versus not, and try to discern my calling. And I think the, this idea of what is the meaning of our life, what is our purpose in life, is so foundational. And now that when I coach senior executives and CEOs, and when we do the new CEO workshop at at Harvard Business School where I teach. And we ask people to, um, at Harvard, we ask them to, the new CEOs to write their retirement speech. How do you want to be remembered? Uh, And my wife, who is an executive leadership coach, asked her clients to write down their eulogy. What do do you want people to say on that day when you're not going to be around to listen to them? I think these are foundational questions. And it's hard to be a leader if you don't have that anchoring into who you are and who you want to be as a leader and how, what legacy you want to leave. And what about, have you written, I assume you, you uh, drank your own Kool-Aid. Did you write your own eulogy as well as part of this exercise? I I have. And I've also written down my uh, personal purpose, which is to uh, try to make a positive difference on people around me that close and then try to use the platform I have to make a positive difference in the world. So, when I was at Best Buy, it was to use Best Buy to make a positive difference in the world. And now it's to use, you know, the platform I've built to, uh, you know, uh, give back and help the next generation of leaders, you know, deal with some of the challenges the, the world is facing. Yeah. <laughs> so you say, you say in your book, you bear, and it's, uh, the book is called The Heart of Business. Um, you say that uh, purpose is at the heart of business. And, I mean, purpose is a very big buzzword lately, though, in, in business circles. And consulting firms I talk to now even have entire business practices centered on helping clients find their purpose. But, you know, unlike profits, it's not as easy to define, uh, of course. So, you know, how long did it take for you to discover Best Buy's purpose after you joined in 2012? And actually, we did not start with that. Uh, in 2012, when, the, when everybody thought we were going to die, the focus was on fixing what was broken. And at the time, you were following us. So making sure our prices were competitive, that our online shopping experience was great. 
the experience in the stores was great, that our cost structure was fine, uh, and, and all that kind of good stuff. It's like it's it's like in a Maslowian pyramid, right? If you if you're in the process of dying, you know you, you have to <laughs> fix what's broken. Yeah. But yeah. back in 2016, when we uh, felt that we had turned the business around, and we started to focus on, you know, how do we accelerate our growth and how do we define what kind of company we want to become when we grow up? And so at the time, we had done a lot of strategy work on segmentation, targeting, positioning, a lot of what I teach to my marketing, to my MBA students at Harvard these days. But at the same time, you know, I, everybody had watched the the start with why, you know, Ted Talk from Simon Sinek. And I had done all of this work on purpose for, you know, 20 or 30 years. Defining our, our purpose felt really important. And uh, by the way, this is not a fuzzy thing. This is something in my mind that you, you have to look for at the intersection of four circles. One, what the world needs. What are the unmet needs that you're trying to address? What are you uniquely good at? What are you passionate about and how you can make money? So this is real yeah. work. Of course, the beauty of anchoring the strategy in purpose is that it's more inspiring for everybody at the company if they can connect sure. with that purpose. It also allows to expand the addressable markets. That's how Best Buy got into healthcare and, and helping aging seniors stay in their home and live in their home independently with the help of, uh, yeah. of technology. Now, the challenge, because it's become so fashionable, the challenge that everybody's struggling with, right? Okay, so we need to define our purpose. How do we make it come to life? How do we really make it the key, the, the keystone of the of the strategy? And importantly, how do we create an environment where, as I talk about in the book, you can, we can unleash human magic in support of that purpose? And that's where the, the real work is, and that's where I'm passionate about it, and I'm helping a number of companies and, of course, our students at HBS work on that. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let me remind you, when we were writing about Best Buy's revival a few years ago, as you know, we spoke to several members of your senior leadership team. And one of them, uh, Trish Trish Walker, um, I was digging up my old interview with her. She said that what makes you unique as a CEO is that she said she felt she could be 100% herself 
on the job. She didn't need to like bring a different persona to the office that she brought to to her home life. Was that critical to your success, do you think? And how does that play into to purpose, the kind of the human element? Do a lot of CEOs overlook that, you feel? Well, I, I, I think everybody's trying to embrace that, but that was essential because in a sense, this vision of business that I articulate in, in the heart of business is the idea of business being about pursuing a noble purpose and then placing people at the center, creating the right environment for everyone at the company to blossom and, and uh, get fulfilled, embracing all of our stakeholders and treating profit as an outcome, not the goal. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, the old, when I, when I think about <laughs> what's broken in business today, there's two people on my FBI most wanted list, Matt. One is, uh, of course, Milton Friedman, an easy target, shareholder primacy. The other one is Bob McNamara, the inventor of scientific top-down management, of course, the former Secretary of Defense yeah. in, in the 60s. And the old approach that so many of us grew up with is you take a bunch of smart people, they create a smart strategy, communicate that plan to everybody, put incentives in place and hope that something good happens. And it doesn't work, you know? Yeah. And if you use carrots and sticks, you're going to get donkeys. And donkeys, you know, is not, you know, what you want. What we've learned over the last, you know, 20 or 30 years is that uh, motivation is intrinsic. Nobody likes That's to be it. told what to do. So what's critical is for the energy to come from within and come from What's important to me as an individual? What's my own purpose in life? And how can I connect what drives me with the work and then with the purpose of the, yeah. of, of the company? And this idea of creating an environment where everybody can write themselves into the bigger story, that's essential. And that may be where I've learned the most in the last, you know, in the 10 years when I was, uh, yeah. 10 years when I was at Best Buy. Can you put that in the context of the pandemic, though? I mean, Hubert, you talk about finding a noble purpose, but these days, especially retail workers, I mean, they are just trying to survive. Their 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 job is tough to begin with. Now they're getting screamed at by customers uh, for being told to wear a mask. Um, you know, we're obviously seeing huge rates of of turnover, people leaving the the field, and it's it's not surprising. So, how do you convince an hourly employee who feels underpaid, underappreciated, um, that their job has purpose and and meaning? How do you get them invested in work and, and engaged? I think that during the pandemic, we've all gotten to realize the importance of purpose and humanity, right? And recognizing that our coworkers were human beings. Now, whether it's people working from home or working on the front line, you know, we've gotten to know them, not just as a worker, but as a human being. And one of the skills that we've all had to develop as leaders is empathy, which is a word that... Uh, was not particularly used, you know, five years ago. Now, this idea of purpose in retail, you know, before the pandemic, I remember, you know, visiting a store in Boston, one of our stores, and where the store general manager was asking everyone in his store a simple question, which was, what is your dream? At Best Buy, outside of Best Buy, what is your dream? He said, write it down in the break room. And my job as the general manager is to help you achieve your dream. So in the context of this great resignation that people talk about, I think we have to talk about the great re-recruiting. So treat everyone who's uh, an employee today as if we were going to recruit them to the company, because yeah. that way we would actually get to know them, understand what their aspirations are, what makes them tick, and create the environment, a journey where they can uh, 
they can develop. In the case of many retailers, certainly the essential retailers, I mean, think about the mission that Best Buy has had during this pandemic, making sure that you know your headsets and and your mic and your bandwidth, all of this was uh, so that you could work from home or teach from home or learn from home was essential or getting a big refrigerator because everybody was eating from home. And so that was the 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 the, the mission. And at the heart of everybody, I think, is a desire to do something good for other people. Uh, even Darth Vader, his son, right, in Star Wars, <laughs> believes that uh, the force is still in him. And I think that as leaders, we need to create this environment where people f- can connect what drives them with the work they're doing in, in, a, in a genuine uh, fashion, and of course, they have to feel safe, and that they have to feel that they're respected, that they're recognized for who they are, and that we're going to have their back. Uh, and that's uh, that's what leadership very much today is all about, right? It's creating the right environment for people, so that people can feel that they can be themselves, their best, the biggest, most beautiful uh, version of themselves, and that they they get to. Be excited coming to work every day. That's the yeah. that's the opportunity. You mentioned you mentioned empathy. I mean, how difficult is it to teach, a, you know, let's say a fifty five year old CEO empathy? Someone who's come up through the ranks, you know, maybe in sales, and it's all about performance. All of a sudden, you say, "Well, wait a minute. Now you have to show some empathy to your, uh, you know, to your employees." And and I'm I'm sure they kind of give you maybe a look like that. So t- I mean, how difficult is that to uh, to teach an experienced executive? Uh, I, I'll speak from personal experience. This is a journey, right? Because so many of us grew up as leaders, you know, as business leaders, very performance-driven, using our left brain. And we've been, in many ways, you know, I cut off my head from the rest of my body for way too long. One of the things we've learned in this pandemic and this time is that we need to learn to lead with all of our body parts, our brain, but also our heart, our soul, our guts, our ears, our eyes. And this is hard, you know, because we need to be able to deal with our emotions as a leader, which is not, again, how we've been raised. I really admire Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft. In fact, I, I recently interviewed him uh, in the context of a uh, program we have at HBS. And of course, he talks about his own journey uh, and his experience with his son, Zane, who was uh, born with cerebral palsy. And where uh, Satya, he talks about it publicly, you know, had to learn how to put himself in the shoes of his, his son, as opposed to being angry about, oh, my God, my life has changed. This is hard, but I think that uh, the effective leaders today are going to be fulsome leaders. They're going to be authentic leaders. They're going to be vulnerable leaders. They're going to be empathetic leaders. You know, my most frequently used phrase these days is, my name is Hubert, I need help. Yes. This is change. And so, you know, if if somebody needs help with becoming a more empathetic, more human leader, they should ask for help. Yeah. You mentioned Satya at Microsoft. What other leaders, either from the business world or or elsewhere, do you, do you really admire and why? Well, there's so many because I think that uh, all of the, I mean, I mostly know uh, CEOs of uh, large companies. Yeah, they they know that the old ways, you know, the top down uh, take no prisoner approach is is not working. Plus, it's not congruent with their soul. And so, everybody's on that. I think is on that journey to lead from a place of purpose and with humanity. And the the thing we have in common is that we know it's hard. So we're all on this learning journey. So there's many great leaders. You know, Alex Gorsky, who's just stepped down. 
at J&J has been a great, uh, very cradle-based. They have their cradle at J&J. Uh, leader, successor, Joaquin Duato is in the same camp. John Donahoe at Nike, I think, uh, is a great role model for me. He's very, a very spiritual uh, leader who, you know, as leaders, you know, it's one of the things we've had to learn during the crisis is that we have to take care of ourselves before we can take others. Remember that when we used to fly on airplanes, how the steward or stewardess would tell us if the oxygen mask comes down, put it on yourself first before you can help others. And so spending time with ourselves, you know, during COVID, if you cannot go outside, go inside, spend time with yourself. Who do you want to be as a leader? What principles and values are going to guide you? How do you want to be remembered when this thing is over, hopefully at some point? Uh, and how do you have a routine where, you know, you take care of your, not only your body, but also your soul, and you're able to lead, again, from a place of purpose and with humanity. And so there's many great uh, leaders who are on that journey, because that's what you need uh, sure. to be an effective leader today. How do you manage your time now that you're no longer on sort of the CEO schedule? You've got your teaching, you've got your writing, your coaching. Um, you know, how do you keep it all together? Well, it's it's hard because, believe it or not, I'm working as hard today as I was <laughs> as when I was a CEO. So I try to have a, a good routine where on an ongoing basis I review, you know, what are my goals and my priorities, and I try to prune and align my activities, which uh, essentially I've had to learn a new skill to a new level, which is how to say no, so that I can be focused on what's really uh, uh, essential. Yeah. I've, I've become quite good at this, but not good enough. I need to get that's one of my New Year resolutions, get better at saying no. There's a new, uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, Hubert, of coming, from, you know, growing up in, in France, there's a new study from Bain that I just wrote about today, actually, that asked 20,000 workers around the world what matters to them in a job. And for Americans, you might, you're probably not surprised to hear the biggest motivator was still pay and, and benefits, despite all the talk about flexibility. Uh, but for the French, it was the ability to do interesting work that mattered more than anything else. Uh, would you would you agree there? Yeah, and I think that, you know, pay is important. You know, you need, it's again, in the Maslowian view of things, you, you need to have the right pay and, and you need to be able to afford things. But one of the things that I've heard Corey, uh, you know, and you see at Best Buy talk about is how turnover at Best Buy has gone down. Now, of course, she had to, uh, she decided to continue to increase uh, pay and, and benefits. But the real driver of the decrease in turnover in the context of this great resignation is actually more the environment. And so I think that uh, in, in the book, I talk about these ingredients that are needed, right? One is meaning. I think that's really essential. Two is uh, human connections, being in an environment where you can have authentic human connections in way, and you feel, we talked about it, where you feel that you exist. My compatriot, René Descartes, He's famous of the Cartesian philosophy. He's famous for having said centuries ago, I think, therefore I am. I think that's wrong. It's I am seen, therefore I am. Yeah. Uh, it's autonomy, uh, being able to uh, have a big influence on my, on my work. It's uh, development, learning new skills, and it's a growth environment. And the last one uh, that uh, you know, my colleague at Harvard talks about is uh, psychological safety, being in an environment where you know, I can be myself and I can, uh, you know, speak up. And uh, and these are ingredients that, uh, in, in, and there's a lot of research on that, but also in my experience, yeah. if as a leader you can create an environment that has these ingredients, you get irrationally good outcomes and, and, and happiness all around. Yeah. 
What's your take, Hubert? There's a big debate right now around remote work and this disconnect between, you know, corporate leaders on the one hand, Jamie Dimon, of course, is the poster boy for getting people back into the office, into uh, butts in seats type of approach versus, let's say, uh, Twitter, where everyone is, you know, it's remote work forever. Um, there's a huge disconnect between, you know, um, how productive people can be, what impact does it have on the culture when you work uh, remotely? Where, where do you come down on that argument? obviously you spent your entire life in offices, in conference rooms. And so like many people, you know, uh, the concept of working remotely, maybe full time is new to you, but you also, you know, you're in this new phase of your career as well. Uh, what would you tell a CEO who's saying, well, I want everyone back in the office. How can I manage everyone if they're not back in the office? I think yeah, yeah, that's where you have to, to listen. The, 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 when we listen to the employees, they actually have, they're a bit conflicted. On the one hand, they want the flexibility, and we've all learned that actually you can work remotely for some of the work in a very productive fashion. They also want the intimacy and the connectivity with others. And for new employees, and because the pandemic has now been going on for two years, think about the percentage of employees at any company that have never been in the office and have not built these uh, personal connections, the mentoring, the coaching. My view is that I see... This time, <laughs> that's the eternal optimist in me, as an opportunity to reinvent how we work and where we work. And it's not just places, but it's also, you know, uh, what, how do we break things down between the different types of activities and what's the best way to conduct these activities and engaging the employees in reinventing work and how work gets done. Because in many ways, including how office space has been designed, this has been the same for 50 years. So I think every 50 years, redesigning how, you know, what is the work, how, what's the best way to get the work done? You know, we've all embarked on agile ways of working. Well, that is not around cubicles. That's going to be around, you know, design space where, you know, people can come together and do the design work and the, the sprints and so forth associated with, uh, with agile. So, what I see a lot of companies do, I mean, there's been some, some back and forth. Well, I'll be back in the office by Labor Day. Oh, just kidding. Yeah, no, oh, just by kidding. First January. Day, I mean, it, yeah. it's like a moving target. I think that the best companies use this time as a way to try to reinvent what's the best way and engage the employees in that uh, rethinking uh, and then being modest about it and say, we're going to experiment. Yeah. A, because we don't know what the future holds in terms of, you know, health and safety. And B, because there's so much we're going to learn. So let's embark on this learning journey and uh, see what uh, what kind of environment we can create that's going to be productive yeah. and fun. I think the key there, though, as you bear in your answer, was engaging employees. I think a lot of employees don't feel listened to on this topic or they feel more dictated to. Um, I mean, everyone's doing pulse surveys and everyone's asking, I think, employees' opinion. But do you think companies are really listening and incorporating that into their strategies or are they just sort of perhaps listening uh, because they feel they have to? I think there's a range, but I think that one of the things that as leaders we've all learned during the last two years is listening because the old model of the leader who knows it all and has got all of the answers. I don't know about you, Matt, did you have the manual on how to deal with COVID or how <laughs> the manual on how to deal with back to the office? Of course not. So the uh, frequently used phrase that uh, leaders have no choice but have to say is that we don't know. I don't yeah. know. Uh, we're going to have to figure this out together 
and yeah. let's let's do the work. And any leader who uh, doesn't know how to use this uh, important phrase, I don't know, and we're going to have to figure, is missing the point yeah. because here's the truth. We don't know, so might as well yeah. say it. You know? Yeah. Another thing CEOs, I think, are figuring out these days, Hubert, more than ever, is uh, when and how to speak out on important social issues. Uh, according to Edelman's Trust Barometer, more than 8 in 10 people want CEOs to speak out on issues, whether it's racial justice, voting rights, living wage. You know, how, in your opinion, how should CEOs determine when and what to say on some of these issues that can completely divide their customer base and also their workforce? Yeah, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of thinking and work on that, both when I was the CEO of Best Buy, but more recently in my new uh, in my new job. There's no doubt that uh, you know the our, our mission as CEOs or our businesses has changed dramatically. Right, the, the the mission has changed. It used to be just profit optimization. Now it's all of these other facets. The scope has changed. It used to be the four walls of the business. Now it's all of the stakeholders, and of course the leadership approach has has changed as well. Now. Of course, we have to be a little bit careful because as CEOs, we're not elected officials, right? We, we've not been charged with, you know, uh, leading the country or anything like this. The, the, there's no way that as a CEO, you can chase every issue. So most companies uh, have, uh, have established a process and a set of criteria to okay. decide when and how to get involved. And for me, the, the first criteria is, is the issue relevant, to us as a company, to our people, to our customers, to our community, to our values, to our purpose. So if you're Walmart, guns, that's a very relevant issue. If you're Best Buy, guns, less relevant. Exactly. Uh, immigration, if you're Microsoft, H-1B visas, that's a big issue because that's directly relevant to your business. Dreamers, that's an issue for all of us because we've had a lot of uh, dreamers as our as our employees. Now, the scope keeps expanding. So voting rights is a very interesting issue. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't have thought five years ago that companies would get involved in that. But then you think about it. People who get to vote are our employees. As a company, it's important that we have the back of our employees, that our employees feel that we uh, care about them, not just as employees, but as, as fulsome human beings. Now, it can be tricky because you know, as a CEO, I may not be an expert at, you know, the intricacies of a particular voting uh, rights bill, but making sure that my employees can vote uh, yeah. is critical. And I admire, for example, Carol Tomei, uh, CEO of UPS, you know, who at the time of the debate about the Georgia uh, voting rights uh, bill, you know, she created a set of policies within UPS to make it easier for our employees to, um, uh, to vote. Yeah. There's a broader debate, by the way, which is how essential is a well-functioning bureaucracy to business. One can argue that it's essential. Capitalism was inseparable from a, the, the rule of law and a democracy and so forth. So that's where I think that the, the Business Roundtable issued that statement last week on the occasion of the anniversary of uh, the, the events of January 6th, highlighting how a well-functioning bureaucracy, uh, not bureaucracy, democracy, democracy yeah. uh, is, is, is essential. But then beyond the relevance, you have also the question of congruence, right? So if I make statements about, you know, Nike got in trouble a little bit when they had their Colin Kaepernick commercial a few years ago, and then it turned out that their internal policies around diversity and inclusion was not as great as they probably aspired them to be. Yeah. So uh, you also have to look at efficacy. 
what's the best way to be effective? Is it to talk or is it to do? And then you have to look at the business impact of whether you get engaged or not. But I don't think that uh, it should necessarily be the main driver because, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that, that uh, remember when Delta Airlines decided to end the discount for the NRA, yeah. you know, the legislature in, or the governor, I forgot, in Georgia said, we're going to end your subsidy. And Ed Bastian, you know, said, well, our values are not for sale. You, know, yeah, you, yeah. you cannot buy us. And you're going to, you know, in the context of a very divided country, you know, you're going to get some hate mail uh, on some of these issues. But if you're governed by purpose and values, what's uh, what's the right thing to do? And, and you follow through. And the other thing, and that's the last thing I would say, Matt, is that uh, we have to make this declaration of interdependence um, as, as as businesses. You know, following the murder of George Floyd, and of course, Best Buy is headquartered in Minneapolis. If the city is on fire, you cannot open the stores. You cannot run yeah. a business. Or if the planet is on fire, to quote uh, uh, Rebecca Anderson, also at Harvard, you know, that's the biggest business risk, according to Larry Fink, right? The, you know, climate yeah. change and so forth. So we have to make this declaration of interdependence and realize that uh, we cannot be successful in business in isolation from the fate of our various stakeholders. Yeah. So, Hubert, I wanted to ask you about George Floyd. Of course, Best Buy's home is is uh, in Minneapolis, uh, where he was murdered. You were still chairman of the company, of course, when he was killed. W- what advice, if any, did you give to Corey, your, your new your your new CEO, on what to say, what not to say, and also what Best Buy should do to ad- address inequality, both inside and outside its four walls. You mentioned a second ago the, the difference between talking and doing. So what did you advise in terms of what to say and then also what to, to do? Because, of course, Best Buy has made a, a slew of announcements since then. But, you know, what uh, what was your advice? Well, we had been on the journey of uh, increasing diversity and inclusion at Best Buy together uh, for a number of years. I think starting in 2016, when I had realized through employee engagement surveys uh, that uh, the level of engagement of our black African American uh, colleagues were was materially lower than other employee populations. And uh, I did the work, did focus groups. We learned. I, I reached out to people who could um, increase my awareness and my understanding of the issues. And we embarked on that journey. When I stepped down as chairman, we had uh, not only did we have a majority of women on our board, we had three. African-American uh, uh, directors, but still we were not perfect. And so what Corey uh, said, and Corey, she doesn't need my advice. She's such a <laughs> wonderful leader. says, we can do better. We need to do better. And that deals with how we recruit, where and how we recruit, how we retain. Also how we deal with our vendors. You know, as, as a large company, you have an influence on the vendor uh, community. And, and, and that's one of the levers you can pull. And also community, you know, getting engaged in addressing, uh, you know, inequality issues. So not directly related to black diversity, but one of the things that Corey embarked upon at at Best Buy in Minnesota was an effort with other great Minnesota companies and and the governor to make it, uh, to make broadband access more widely available throughout the states. And because there's a number of underserved communities, including rural areas that didn't have good uh, uh, broadband access. And to illustrate the point, why would Best Buy get involved in that? It's not for selfish interest to sell more routers, but it's because if our employees, you know, cannot have their children learn from home, 
or if our employees cannot work from home, you know, yeah. that's a problem. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. As, as a director, though, and again, you're, you're on two corporate boards, Johnson Johnson and Ralph Lauren. Um, how do you make sure that that conversation gets to the to the head of the agenda of the board meeting, though? Because boards have to worry about, you know, succession, of course, all the, all the normal things that boards do. And you're only meeting maybe four times a year. It's probably virtual these days. So there are other things on the board's agenda. How do you make sure you push those issues higher up uh, on the list? Well, I think we've seen a sea change in the last one or two years uh, on, on the issue of diversity and, and inclusion in particular. Uh, you're, you're seeing now companies setting uh, quantitative targets in terms of uh, improving diversity and inclusion around gender, but also race and other dimensions. This has become a, an ongoing matter at the board level. It's embedded in everything we uh, we do. It's increasingly embedded in how leaders manage these uh, companies. You know, one of the things that we've seen is that uh, if you ensure you have diverse slates and candidates and diverse interview team, you get to a better outcome. And so that requires leadership changes. So what makes me optimistic on the ability of corporate America to uh, make progress is that this has become part of the core agenda. And do we know how to solve business problems in the corporate world? Yes, we do. And if a company sees increasing diversity and inclusion as a business imperative, which it is, then I'm I'm confident that this is uh, something that uh, companies will continue to make uh, progress on because we know how to deal with business issues. Yeah, we hope so, because you know, we've been chasing companies for the past year or so to make sure that they get us their EEOC report. So we have a full way to compare in an apples to apples way, um, you know, the constitution of, of their workforces, racial representation. And it's not often easy. Sometimes, you know, there's plenty of still very big companies 
that just refuse to even disclose that uh, publicly. You know, they share it with with the government. But how do you you know how do you improve what you're not measuring? Um, it's it's about I think we need to hold everyone a bit more accountable uh, these days on on this topic. Uh, Hubert, something I, I may have asked you before, but I'd love to I ask all CEOs and, and business leaders I talk to what what's the best piece of advice you ever received? Who gave it to you, and and how has it influenced you? Best piece of advice I've ever received. Um, well, there's there's so many. Yeah. One of one of them, which I share with my students at HBS, which was uh, something that my good friend Jim Citrin, a senior partner at uh, Spencer Stewart, we all know him, uh, once wrote in a column in Yahoo Finance years ago, where he said the best leaders don't climb to the top; they are carried to the top. And so, doing the best job you can where you are today. And, you know, being of service to people around you where you are, as opposed to already thinking about the next, uh, you know, opportunity. Yeah. So being being in the moment uh, and being the best version of yourself in the moment, I think, is, uh, is, a, is a wise uh, uh, piece of advice I got from yeah. Jim. What's the most surprising bit of feedback you've received? Well, <laughs> when, it, when we were finalizing the manuscript at HBR Press, they have a... Uh, a peer review process, and uh, my good friend Bill George, former CEO of Medtronic, was one of the peer reviewers, and he said, "Bear, this is about a book about leadership. You need to talk more about yourself." Yeah. And I felt I had already disclosed quite a bit. He said, "No, no, you need to do more and show, you know, the struggles you had along the way and the, the challenges. Be vulnerable, mm-hmm. uh, because otherwise, people are going to look at you as as somebody who is perfect, and you're going to miss the point." So yeah. to the extent that there is some personal stories and personal disclosure in the book, let's say that Bill George made me do it, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and was, was that hard for you? How difficult was that? Because yeah. back to this idea of business leaders becoming human leaders, yeah. we, many of us have been trained to have a facade, right? And uh, you know, be that high-performing, you know, uh, high-charging char- high uh, executive, whereas uh, learning to become more human is essential, but it's, it, it was a journey for me, as, as you'll see in the yeah, uh, yeah. people who read the book will see in the book. Yeah. Would you ever take another CEO job, Hubert? You're, a turn, you're known as a turnaround specialist, of course. What if another turnaround opportunity came in front of you from, you know, uh, what would you do? So when I, I decided to uh, pass the baton at Best Buy, I made three decisions, uh, Matt. One, one was I was not going to move down to Florida to play golf with aging white men because <laughs> I don't play golf, so that would have been stupid. Yeah. Two, I was not going to be a CEO anymore because depending on how you count, I'd been a CEO for 15 or 20 years, different companies, and I felt I had done that. And three, I wanted the next chapter to to matter. So, you know, and that was around this idea of helping the next generation of leaders be the best version of themselves that they, they can be. So yeah. I'm very, very happy with this new uh, chapter and full of joy and, and, and fulfillment yeah. and learning, frankly. I'm learning a ton. Yeah. And, and finally, what's it like talking to MBA students these days? Is it different from talking to blue shirts back when you were running Best Buy or in terms of the questions you get and, and the engagement? Um, you know, this, these are the, the CEOs of tomorrow, right? What, what are they like? Yeah, I, I love working with my students. Uh, I think they're the same. They're human beings. You know, they, they come with all sorts of different flavors. And each one of them is unique. They're, they're, they're beautiful. They're messy. They're, they're, they're searching. They have a quest for what's the best way to live a meaningful life. What's you know what's the 
And so I just love that the humanity, and it's it's, it's the same also in executive education. It's a, yeah, it's the humanity of the individuals I, I get to uh, interact with. Excellent. Well, Hubert, uh, this has been great. Thank you so much for talking to us here on, on Out of Office. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you. That was Hubert Jolie, former CEO of Best Buy, in conversation with Matt Boyle. I hope you enjoyed that chat as much as I did. This episode was produced by Laura Carlson. I'm Malika Kapoor. Stay well. And as always, thank you for listening. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.